Hey everybody and welcome to Blades for Days, where we're going to talk about swords and sword fighting and martial arts. I'm your host Jordan. With me today is the one, the only, Keith Farrell. How you doing buddy? Hello. Hey. So um, we were talking about lockdown before we got started and you were talking about things that you've been up to. Yes, uh, not a lot changed for me. I was working from home anyway, but it gave me the opportunity to to dig into a few new projects and also to finish a few other projects that have been lingering for a while. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, um, I, I started about 20 projects when lockdown started and I was like, I'll do this and I'll do this. And then lockdown stretched on and mm -hmm. because the time seemed infinite. I was just like, Oh, well, you know, I'll leave it till tomorrow. And I, I got really bad at that. Which I, I, I gave myself a rule that I had to finish two projects before I was allowed to start one. That's, that's really good, actually. I should have done that, uh, you know, and um, I've got a lot of friends who are quite organized and they have spreadsheets and stuff like that. And I've like my plans written on the back of a receipt from Lidl or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to talk about any of the projects you're working on? Yes. Uh, one of the ideas that I've been sort of kicking about for a, a while now, a while being a good couple of years, is doing some online video courses. Um, there's quite lots of videos of some of my lessons online anyway, uh, but I thought having something slightly more uh, targeted and focused and making more of a cohesive course out of it could be quite useful. Now, I'm, I'm not really a, a video person. Most of my, most of my time is writing, uh, so I, I decided to get myself a, a couple of little uh, video course projects just to try and work out how to do that sort of thing. Uh, so we've got a couple of video courses now um, on the, the Teachable website. It is quite a, a useful resource for putting up video courses. And uh, the one of them is about some of the, the flourishes in the, the German longsword sources. And the other is about just sort of general technical and warming up exercises. I've got plans to do something about Indian clubs in the near future when the, the weather is nice enough and the, the grass is dry enough for me to go outside and do things there without you know, slipping and dying. <laughs> yeah. So that's going to take a while. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, cause I know a lot of the stuff that um, people know about the things that you do or your, your blogs and things like that. Your blogs have actually gotten me into trouble at work um, okay. like a few times. Yeah. Cause um, I'm very sorry. But no, 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 don't apologize. It's my fault. I have no self-control. Um, so I used to work at um, an escape room place in Cardiff. Uh -huh. and, like, a big responsibility was like watching the security cameras and making sure that, you know, the, the um, customers weren't stuck or dying or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, like people would say, okay, watch the cameras. I'm going to go sort this thing out. And I'm like, yeah, cool. And I'd be scrolling through Facebook. I'm like, ah. Oh, you know, Keith's released another blog and I start reading it and you're really good at tying your new blogs into your old blogs. So it'd go down like this sort of Keith Farrell <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, and I, I just like, uh, you know, and then people were like banging on the doors going, let us out. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I better, I better do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so we've talked about, um, your space outside and um, some of the stuff that you're doing there. You're coming back into class now. 
um, or you started up classes now? Yes, uh, my my club Liverpool Hema reopened uh, at the start of August, so we've now had I think five weeks back, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been joyous to to be playing with swords with friends again. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, a little bit painful not being able to sort of reach out, shake hands, hug people, or reach out, smack them upside the head. <laughs> yeah. But we're we're getting by. Yeah. Did you um did you stay in touch with your students throughout uh lockdown? Um catch up with them at all? I tried. Uh I wasn't able to reach out to individuals on a regular basis. I I tried to to keep in touch with the group as a whole and with subgroups and with individuals where possible. Uh, but I, I tried to keep things happening so that the, you know, the the club Facebook page had stuff going on, that the discussion group had stuff being discussed. We ran some online uh, Zoom discussion settings uh, sessions most weeks. Uh, and so there was opportunity for people to stay involved and to keep their hand in to at least some extent. We weren't really able to do a, a lot of physical stuff, but we we did quite a lot of talking, looking at source <laughs> material, history, sort of adjacent issues. We did a, a few. Uh, we tried to do maybe 40 minutes of talking with 30 minutes of some kind of relevant physical exercise that didn't require a sword in hand. And then we'd usually just hang out with beer for a while. Oh, that's cool. Mm, it's a good way to do things. Yeah. Did, um, did your students, when they came back to take part in class, um, did they find that their fitness had dropped at all? I think all of us felt that. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? Yes, certainly. I, th I think the, um, the kind of cardio and endurance has gone down mm. because we've not had much opportunity to do a lot for a sustained period of time. Yeah. Uh, I feel like overall my... You know, health's about the same as it was before. Uh, maybe endurance has gone down, but you know, I've done a bit more strength training and, and the like. So, you know, my strength's gone up. I think <laughs> yeah, we'll I'm, find out when we're able to start stuff. Yeah, when you come to the bind and you're like, oh no, <laughs> it's um, all gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, I um, I went to the gym today for the first time since lockdown. Oh yes. Yeah, I made the huge mistake of. Uh, I was just going, well, that's what I was benching before lockdown. So that's what I'll bench now. And uh, yeah, it didn't go well for me. <laughs> I was, no, I, I imagine was not. quite a bit. <laughs> you know? So tomorrow will be interesting, I think, you know, uh, just getting out, of, uh, getting out of bed. Um, I quite like the, the kind of pain that comes from having used the body and like trying to, to lift things or move things or just a kind of usage pain it's a nice honest kind of pain it tells me i've done something useful yeah it's good um i tried uh, uh throughout uh, lockdown i started doing yoga for the first time right properly. um and that's a different kind of pain you know <laughs> for yes. me it's like uh, uh i'm not the most flexible guy um but pain's really like you know it's an interesting thing as a kind of um because you've got like good pain and then bad pain. And one of the things that you talk about in your blog is like, I mean, you put it way better than I'm about to, 
but it's uh, sort of like borrowing from a bank. It's like an analogy that you mm. like um, something that you do today might cost you later on down the line. So yes, um, yeah. And I think well, I like to think of it kind of like the the bank of the body. Yeah, and you can you can take loans, <laughs> but they they'll be called back in later with interest. Yeah, if you can if you can pay as much with cash as possible. You know, within your capabilities, you know, without breaking yourself, that's probably ideal. Yeah, I actually use that analogy um, with Melissa because uh, she was in my corner and I was in a tournament in uh, Italy, mm -hmm. and there was this guy um, that I was fighting. He was really fast, um, and I managed to hit him in the head. But then I had, in order to sort of parry the afterblow, I twisted my spine like quite severely. That's and, a good. Um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't great, but it was kind of like, it wasn't a decision, it was just a reaction, you know? Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, I sort of parried this blow, and I was like, yeah, I'll be, I'll be paying the bank like, later on. And then I had to explain <laughs> it to Melissa. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, but uh, like, I, I think that's one of the reasons that I really like your blogs, is because they're really accessible, um, you know, for me anyway, uh, because Thank you, you. Used, the analogies a lot and stuff like that and also the classes your workshops are um i think they're great because you focus normally on like maybe one or two principal things that we keep coming back to so it's mm -hmm. not because i've been to some workshops and it's like right i'm going to teach you this play and this play and this play and I'm so many things. yeah exactly <laughs> i've forgotten all of it i'm like that was that was great and i try and write it down and then i'm like okay so play number one was uh, wait no what was it ah, i've forgotten already mm -hmm. You know, um, so I think that's that's good, and because uh, I mean, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people like your workshops because we were in fight. The last time you and I saw each other was fight camp last year, and that it was, was a while ago. yeah, it was a bit, and it was like torrential rain, and uh, I guess I remember that. Yeah, yeah, and everybody lined up to take part in your class anyway, which I think is, you know, I think it's a testament to um to how much they enjoy it that I, I know a lot of people prefer using steel swords to using plastic swords but when you're training outside in british weather plastic swords absolutely serve a purpose oh yeah yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> that's that's the one thing about the i don't mind training in the rain i'm like i live in wales so it's you know if i don't train in the rain i don't train um <laughs> But it's, it's, yeah, it's the cleaning of the swords afterwards, though. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, because um, I know that you came from a karate background. Does, has that helped to like inform the way that you think about HEMA and, and you know, um, the making of your sessions and things like that? Absolutely. I think whatever kind of experience we have, it will put some lens or another on how we look at HEMA. Uh, people coming in from a karate background will look at it one way. People coming in from a modern fencing background will look at it another way. People coming in from a, an MMA or dance or football background will look at it another way. People coming in from LARP or reenactment will have a certain perspective and people coming in with no experience at all will have yet another perspective. And I think all these perspectives are, they, they can be valid if you're able to match up the way you're looking at it with what you're trying to achieve. If you come in with one perspective and you're trying to achieve something else and your perspective doesn't quite align with that goal, you're setting yourself up for problems. And you're just making your life more difficult than it needs to be. I'm all in favor of simplifying things and making my own life simple. 
<laughs> so if we can get things to line up, that becomes easier. So with the, the karate, um, it tends to be quite a, a well-structured martial art, um, structured in terms of the things that you're doing, structured in terms of how the sessions are run, structured in terms of the, the grading procedures and the hierarchy, uh, structured in terms of what sort of things you're likely to learn at different stages. I mean, you can, as a, as a white belt, learn a black belt technique you just won't understand it properly and you won't be able to set up the situation where that will be useful until you have all the other relevant skills that you generally have by the time you're a black belt. So coming into HEMA, I, I, I think it was really useful having the, the karate background. I do things completely differently now compared to how I did the karate, uh, but having that kind of background was, was helpful. Um, certainly, having the experience of having taught karate sessions and having been taught how to teach karate meant that from the, the beginning of my, my, my HEMA career, uh, knowing how to run sessions and how to communicate information and physical skills, this was a, a, big, a big help. Do you still practice karate? I took a break for a number of years so that because I only had enough time and money to focus on one martial arts I did HEMA yeah. for a while. Uh, but I've recently gone back to, to doing karate again with a, a completely different uh, flavor of, of it. Oh, that's cool. And yes. I mean, in, in the karate that I studied a number of years ago, I got up to my, my third Dan black belt. And in this new method, I'm doing uh, Kyokushin karate now. And I recognize all the names. I recognize most of the, the shapes and the movements and everything. And I do them just differently enough that everything is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it's both frustrating and really interesting as a challenge and can i take what 14 or 15 years of muscle memory and change all of it in the tiniest little details yeah it's getting there it's getting better <laughs> oh that's grand man so i mean at what age did you pick karate up i started when i was 10 Okay, so that was there from like a very young age. Yeah, I, did, um, I did karate from when I was about 10 until I was 24 or 25 or something like that. Mm. Uh, and then I'd started doing, there was a couple of years of overlap doing karate and HEMA and then I realized I only had enough time and money for serious study of one of them. Um, so I've been doing HEMA now for about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and I've been picking up the karate again for the last year or so, albeit with a, a five month break. During yeah. the lockdown period. I, th I think it's useful to have all these different experiences. I also did some um, modern fencing as a child. I did a probably a couple of years of foil. Uh, mm. I did a couple of years of archery, uh, dabbled in a few other things as well. And just having these experiences makes it much harder to fall into the trap of being dogmatic about stuff because you know you've had this experience of different ways of thinking about things. Yeah. Realize there's no one true answer. There's just different ways of approaching it, and the answer will vary depending on how you approach it. Yeah, I 100% agree. Because um, the other thing is, like, that between you and I, because I'm about 6'4". Um, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, between you and I, there's obviously going to be a physical difference. So something that works for me is not necessarily going to work for you and mm -hmm. vice versa. So if we all take the same approach to it, yeah, it's not going to work. 
Um, so I, I think that's great, um, taking that different approach to it. Um, and again, like, because I came from it from a reenactment background, I, I used to do, like years ago, I did Kung Fu. Um, I did Krav Maga for a while, which is um, good fun. And um, yeah. As long as you're not the one getting kicked. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah, the stories I could tell you. Like I, I've literally came home limping after my first session and Melissa was like, are you okay? How was it? And I was like, it was great. So, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, coming from those backgrounds then into HEMA and with reenactment, because it's like, okay, you know, we're going to teach you the eight cuts that you need to know. And then from, from that, it's a journey of self-discovery. You, hmm. you do your own thing. Um, so they don't really teach you any, I, I mean, they do teach you a bit about footwork. They teach you a bit about, you know, things like things like that, but there's no source material. It's not strict or anything. So there's a lot of kind of free play, um, which is nice. And then you come into HEMA where there are systems and where there are kind of, you know, um, uh, styles. Uh, and then on the extreme side of that, on the other side of that is the sort of dogmatic thing. And you kind of do want to be in that middle where it's like, oh, this works, but how can I make it better? Or this doesn't work. You know, it's in the manuscript fine, but like, I'm obviously, I need to work on it in order, you know, I need to break it down again. Um, would you say that people who do HEMA would benefit from maybe going away and trying a different martial art as well? Absolutely. Yeah? Yes. It's easy to get um, sucked into often quite seductive points of view with what we're doing uh, or to fall into traps or, or such like. And having something else where you're forced to do things differently is excellent in terms of becoming better able to observe those traps or realize that you've sort of fallen into this point of view and there's other ways to think about it as well. Even if the end result is that you just have a slightly more open mind and you're better able to consider competing points of view, that's a, that's a really big and important skill. It's worth its weight in gold. Yeah. And if you manage to learn some additional, you know, hands and feet stuff, then so much the better. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, totally. I love it when I see two really, really good swordsmen close on one another and it's obvious that they don't know any hand-to-hand -hand stuff. <laughs> and they sort of like, they close and then it's like two fish flopping around in a puddle, you know? Um, <laughs> I've seen it like a bunch of times. I'm like, man, these guys are good. And then they close and I'm like, oh, maybe mm, might want to work on that bit. <laughs> mm. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of karate, have you um, have you seen uh, Cobra Kai at all on Netflix? Not yet, but it's on the to watch list. Right. Okay. I won't say anything to spoil it. It's just I I literally finished it uh, yesterday or day before. It's so good. It's I've been really hearing good. a lot of good things about it. Mm. I like I said, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's like a lot on TV at the moment um, because it's because everything's trying to sort of fill the void of Game of Thrones, which was kind of gritty and, you know, and there was this and there was a lot of betrayal and, you know, this and that. And, you know, I, I've been watching a lot of stuff like that and I'm like, man, this is dark and gritty. So going up from that onto Cobra Kai, I was like, yes, this is great. This is exactly the flavor Splendid. that I wanted, you know? Splendid. Yeah. But your HEMA journey, like how did you find out about HEMA? How did you get into it? So, when I was at uh, secondary school, uh, I was doing karate at that time, but I also started doing some historical reenactment. 
And by the time I finished secondary school and went to university, um, I was sort of, I was feeling quite dissatisfied with the, the whole reenactment thing. Um, I, I still wanted to play with swords, but I didn't really want to do it for the, the benefit of an audience. I wanted to do it for my own benefit, a bit more like my karate experience. Uh, and so I was at, at university and I think in my second year, I came across a club that was doing sword fighting and you know that was enough. They were doing sword fighting as a martial art and that was enough for me just to sign up and get into it. And it turned out they were drawing their information from these medieval books. And so that was quite interesting. Unfortunately, it wasn't being taught very well. And very quickly, I gained the impression that this whole HEMA thing was just nonsense because none of it works. <laughs> because it was being presented in a very um, authoritative fashion. Like this is how it, this is how it happens, and it will work because of these reasons. Except because of my my experience, uh, just able to, to structure my body a little bit meant that everything stopped working. And so I just I got the impression that it was all nonsense. But after a while, I, I, mean, I, I persevered with it and I started thinking, well, these books must have existed for a reason. People in the Middle Ages wouldn't have gone to the effort and expense of having these things created if there wasn't something useful in there. Maybe I needed to teach myself and sort of start from the beginning. So I, I started looking at the, the sources myself. I, had to pick one to start with, so I tried the, the Nuremberg House book, and it was wonderful. I didn't understand how to do a thing, it was just so cryptic, but what it showed me was that there were underlying principles. It wasn't just a collection of tricks and random stuff you might do. There, there were underlying principles holding the whole thing together. There was a system, I just didn't understand anything. <laughs> so that was quite nice. That, um, that was quite a big point in, in the favour of HEMA actually being useful, in my mind. Uh, so the next one I read was um, Ringex Gloss. And I could see all the, the same underlying principles that the Nuremberg Housebook was, was explaining. And the Ringex Gloss actually explained in a little bit more detail how to do the different techniques. So things started making a, a lot more sense. I saw the value of it and I decided, okay, this is something worth training. Just it needs to be trained properly and taught better. And so we, we spent some time working on that and I kind of got hooked. <laughs> With the language, um, mm. did, you, did you sort of speak, uh, you know, did you speak German anyway? Did you have like a basis for it or did you teach yourself? Not at all. Oh, that's great. Uh, for the first few years, I was totally dependent on other people telling me what the source material said. But uh, throughout my time at university, I had some Swedish friends who got bored and decided to teach me Swedish. And I was also bored, so I decided to learn Swedish. So I was learning Swedish, As you do. <laughs> of course. Um, I'm quite rusty at it now, but some, uh, given a bit of time, it, it, it comes back. Uh, but as a, an exercise mainly in practicing my Swedish, I asked Andreas Engström if I could make an English translation of his Swedish translation of Ringek. 
So it wasn't really an exercise in, in translating Ringek as such. It was an exercise in just getting better at Swedish uh, with with a document that was related to my, my HEMA interests. And so I went through that. And it's not a great translation. <laughs> and it, it definitely suffers from the kind of Chinese whispers effects. And it, it, in some of the sections, it's... I can see how it could be rendered that way. It's just wrong. Sure. <laughs> but from that, um, I was beginning to get a sense of the the intricacies and the complexities of language and making translations beyond just having a, a basic conversation with someone. Uh, you go into a coffee shop and you ask, can I have a, a coffee, please? And probably one of those sweet things. Now, that's not a difficult kind of conversation to have if you have the vocabulary but there's a lot more to <laughs> translating source material than just having a few words. Uh, one of the, the biggest things I had to learn, I hadn't quite learned from studying French at, at school, was that there's not just a one-to-one -one correspondence between words in the dictionary. And if the dictionary says this word means that word, that is true, but the word can also mean a lot of other things, or every word comes with baggage, and you've got to try and unpack that meaning behind the choice of word. So the translation is more about getting the meaning across. And that's something I've been getting better at. <laughs> no, I mean, like, because I, I can imagine for, you know, for the first time, people who are kind of pioneering in, in uh, translating this stuff, sort of coming together, like coming up against something like speaking window. Nah, that can't be right. You know, cross that out and sort of... <laughs> Um, doing something else. It's, it's really quite interesting going back to some of the early translations. I'm now at a stage where I can make translations of the 15th and 16th century German texts, and I think it's close enough to what the author has intended. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not perfect, but I'm, I, I can make a, quite a workable translation now. So going back to some of the earlier translations, I can see how they got to their end result. And because at that time there were very few other translations, they, they had to be working mainly as pioneers. They didn't have much else to look at for, for comparison. And it's really interesting to go back and look at how they chose to render things. And then looking at more modern translations, um, we can see that the, the difference in understanding has led to different ways of rendering certain words or phrases or, or ideas. Do you remember what the book was that your first HEMA group was kind of drawing from? Yes. It was the Mark Rector translation of Talhofer. <coughs> oh, right, okay. Medieval Combat. Yeah. And also um, the uh, Chabinsky translation of Codex Wallerstein. Fair enough. Um, so both of them are actually really bad sources to start with because they are pretty much bags of tricks unless you understand the underlying system of which they do not describe. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, I like Codex Wallerstein, but it's, yeah, it, it, it looks crap. I, I really like it for the, the grappling and the, you know, some of the other parts of it. It's a really interesting book because it incorporates a lot of grappling. It also talks a lot and quite explicitly about stances and footwork mm. that a lot of other contemporary sources do not. Yeah. Uh, for, for people looking at Lichtenauer era footwork, uh, the Codex Wallerstein talks a lot about it, and it's worth returning to that and taking some additional 
uh, looks at it. So with your uh, journey from when you first started to now and how he is now, what would you change about that journey? Hmm. That's a, it's a good question. I think overall, I prefer to have been maybe a little bit more uh, selective about how I spent some of my time about maybe some of the, the people I associated with, some of the groups I associated with. Uh, but that being said, I wouldn't be at the, the stage I am now of, of understanding or experience or, or whatever if I hadn't gone to these various places and had all these interactions and done all this learning. So I don't think overall I'd have changed, I, I would change very much. Uh, I went into it in the very, very beginning, understanding that to get anywhere, it would be a long, hard slog and I'd have to put in effort and time. And I'm still doing that. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think there could be any shortcut I could have taken. I could just maybe have made it slightly more enjoyable for myself by not putting myself in less enjoyable situations. <laughs> I've been really lucky um, because the groups that I've been a part of, uh, when I was in Italy, I was with um, uh, La Compania dell'Arma della Rosa Espada, which is a you know a bit of a mouthful. But um, yeah, they were really great guys. Um, and obviously when I came to Britain, I set up my own school. Uh, my students are fantastic, love them. And um, I also train a lot, like I said, with the Academy of Historical Fencing. No, I've been really lucky with that. And like I said, the people that I've come into contact with, and I mean, you've traveled a lot, so you've probably interacted with a lot more uh, like HEMA groups than I have. Yes. It's, it's one of the things that's commonly said, travel will help to open your eyes, to, to broaden your mind. It's very true. Uh, if you go outside the resort. <laughs> Having the opportunity to travel to all the different countries and see how different uh, HEMA clubs do things, it's quite clear that we all have very similar problems to, to solve, like how do we understand the source material? How do we put a club together? How do we find a venue to do the training? How do we get the right equipment to do all this sort of stuff? How do we make a, a, a good and healthy club for the long term? We all have these same problems and different people, different um, places, the problems have to be solved differently. So seeing all the different solutions or the different ways of approaching the problems has been uh, really quite instructional. Uh, it's quite easy to get bogged down thinking about things only from the perspective of how they're done in your country or the, the legal environment in your country. And having this awareness that it's different for everyone, even though it's similar problems and that the solutions have to be appropriate. Um, I think this means we can be a bit more uh, sensitive in terms of uh, nuanced in, in terms of how we approach these various discussions. So much of it uh, boils down to how to get things moving, how to look after our people, <laughs> and how to do so in a, a legal and healthy fashion. And that's kind of what most of it boils down to. Probably the most vocal discussions at the moment tend to be about like, how do you interpret this technique or how 
how do you fence better in a tournament or how do you, like, all that side of things. But probably what's actually more important to talk about and what we're seeing discussed more often at the moment is how to run a healthy and safe club, how to run a good event, how to make sure that it's a good place for people to, to be. That's a really important area of discussion and we are seeing more of that discussion happening now, which is, is a really good thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions that I got asked um, as part of this Q&A, well, we all got asked um, as part of this Q&A is um, if anybody, you know, um, if any of the instructors ever saw any of the weapons in HEMA kind of overtaking or being on par with um, modern Olympic style fencing. And we were basically discussing that that all comes down to politics and rather than the weapon itself, it comes down to sort of how we all, you know, as a HEMA community, like a global HEMA community, how we can synergize and, um, you know, if we're, if we're all going to agree to one set of rules, which, you know, is a whole can of worms. It's a really interesting idea. And I think that, I think that, yeah, people kind of reaching out and helping one another in this environment, um, that's, that's going to be great rather than, as you say, sort of focusing on the, um, you know, just focusing on techniques and things like that is fine, but then they're not going to survive unless we get people in and, you know, into HEMA, if we're not going to sort of grow, um, it, martial arts are generally living things. They tend to evolve and change. And But sometimes it's better not actually to grow for a while and to do a little bit of maintenance. Mm. Um, what we're discovering at the moment uh, across the, the HEMA community, there are a lot of a lot of organisations that don't have all the right processes in place to keep their people safe, and that there's not the right training for people doing different tasks. Uh, there's maybe not as much instructor training as there should be. There's not as much safeguarding training as there should be. There's not as much first aid training as there should be, and you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, again, people often jump straight to talking about referee training for tournaments. That's just part of it. There's a lot more that we need to, to be talking about that's nowhere near as interesting or as sexy or as, as visible even in many, many cases. But it's even more important. And it's, it would probably do the community a, a power of good not to push too much further for a little while and just focus on what do we have and how can we make this better? How can we make it work, work better for the people within? And that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with, with my organization at the moment, the Academy of Historical Arts. Uh, we've got quite a lot of uh, clubs across the UK affiliated to us. Um, got almost 400 members across the, the UK. That's cool. And I'm not, I'm not trying to grow the organization at all. We keep growing kind of by accident. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to grow it. What I'm trying to do is to improve what's happening inside the organization. Kind of shallow or empty organizations, maybe big organizations, but with nothing really at the, the center. It just so happens to be people, lots of people sort of tangentially involved in the, the same sort of thing. Mm. And if there's a big issue, it'll all explode because there's nothing to hold it together or deal with it properly. Entropy. Mm. 
Um, I think growing accidentally, you know, as a byproduct of doing something well is is probably going to be a good thing, though, surely, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, who can sort of give you new ideas and have different experiences of their own and things like that, that they can apply to what you're trying to do. Um, I, th I think you're right. I think that there is a big emphasis on growth. Um, I think subconsciously, because, you know, everybody's kind of first generation Hemer, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so not something that's, you know, like um, Judo Aikido that's existed for a hundred plus years. Um, it's, it's something that's like, I, I think maybe there's like this subconscious kind of um, fear that people want to, first of all, validate HEMA and the amount of time that they've spent on it. And they're like, quick, we got to grow before it all falls apart. Like, you know, it's a, like an idea of there's a lot of plate spinning um, and they just don't want it to go away because it is relatively new, I suppose. And um, maybe that's the fear and that's why they want it to grow. And, you know, they see it. And I mean, I see it. I, I see that growth as kind of like a recognition, a larger recognition to the, you know, by the uninitiated, like the outside world. Part, part of this growth is excellent and part of it is problematic one thing that's um that we're seeing a lot of at the moment is random people all over the place sort of hearing about this hema thing and kind of wanting to get involved with this hema thing and so they decide okay what is this hema thing well clearly it's a bunch of people fighting with swords so they go and buy themselves some random swords from random makers with dubious quality control and they just start sparring with their friends. Yeah. And they're maybe not wearing any um, fencing masks. They're maybe not wearing any padded gloves. Um, they're maybe not using sparring safe swords. They're maybe not observing any sensible safety precautions. They're just sort of beating in each other with swords. Is that HEMA? Well, I don't think so. I think that's just playing about swords. Yeah. But People are then taking videos of this and posting it out and calling it HEMA. Right, yeah. And this is just perpetuating the problem. So we have a lot of people, an increasing amount of people, becoming aware of HEMA by way of people who aren't actually doing HEMA, just messing about with swords unsafely and calling it HEMA. Yeah. And if the community doesn't take some kind of stand against that and say, no, that's not HEMA, because HEMA is a safe sport, we're done with proper protective equipment. Yeah. Um, if we just accept any old nonsense, then any old nonsense will be acceptable. Yeah, no, okay. I've... So some people will say that this is gatekeeping, and it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but gatekeeping is how you keep some of the barbarians out of your city. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's healthy kinds of gatekeeping and there's unhealthy kinds of gatekeeping. Mm. And we should focus on the, the healthy kind to make sure that we make a stand about unsafe practices while still allowing in anyone who wants to do safe HEMA, you know, they should be able to come in and do it. Uh, but we should be able to say, no, what you're doing is not HEMA because you're just pissing about with swords. And <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? I've had two emails. I'm not going to name names or anything. They know, uh, one of them hasn't shown up. He didn't come to class, but they were like, you know, ah, oh, hey, I want to join your club kind of thing. And um, one came for one session. 
Uh, and one of them said, uh, oh, hello. Yeah, I'd like to join. I have extensive experience of HEMA. And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. okay. Because um, I've had people from like Scholar Gladiatoria come down and they're like, hey, I've moved to Cardiff. Can I join up with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Come on in. Uh, and people who've practiced with other clubs, more than welcome, you know, uh, come on in. So I was like, you know, who did you train with? Where have you trained? And he went, oh, no, uh, me, and my, me and my friends would get drunk around a campfire and we'd hit each other with rolling swords. So you're spot on in terms of like mm. some people. And I'm kind of like, okay, that's not Hema. But the second one, and he didn't turn up. And I'm a little, I wish he had, um, but he was like, yeah, I've got a lot of experience in Hema. And I said, oh yeah, like what, you know, what have you done? What kind of weapons do you use? And he says, uh, oh, I've, um, I've, I'm quite experienced with a battler. You know, the, the weapon from Star Trek. And I was mm. like, that, what? <laughs> I said, that's not Hema. So I, I think as a community, uh, we're doing a lot of things really well doing a lot of things really badly and one of the things we're doing quite badly that we need to improve on is showing showing better what is good HEMA. Uh, there was a thread on the uh, UK HEMA discussion group on Facebook a while ago about what is the HEMA model and people from out with HEMA perceived that to be putting on safety gear and fighting, making contact sparring with swords. And that's what they perceived the HEMA model to be. And that's really far from how I conceptualize it. It doesn't mention anything about our source material. It doesn't mention anything about the historicity, the, you know, anything <laughs> like that. Um, but what a lot of people seem to be picking up from our community is that HEMA is just beating on each other with swords, possibly with competitions. <laughs> yeah. And this is not a great face to be putting to the world. No. And I, th I think while this is contributing to some extent with the explosion of numbers to the HEMA community across the world, which is a good thing, it's also meaning that... Um, a lot of people have a, a very skewed point of view on what it is we're doing and have the assumption that any old nonsense will be quite acceptable because that's the HEMA model. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, HEMA's not, you know, this isn't a problem that's exclusively uh, HEMA. I don't know if you've seen like the videos of um, traditional martial artists, um, you know, traditional Eastern martial artists um, in China and Hong Kong and stuff like that. And they are getting absolutely tuned up by MMA fighters. Um, and um, it transpires that the guys that are the traditional Eastern martial artists, um, they're basically charlatans because they've made up their own martial art. And it's like thunder style Tai Chi uh and you know mt force or something like that i can't like i can't remember the um uh the exact details but you know uh the chinese government was outraged because they've been embarrassed by the fact that they these people have gone ahead and sort of said okay i'll give five thousand dollars to anyone who feels that they can knock me down because i i do this special kind of tai chi and then you know they get tuned up by whatever challenger goes along. I think one was actually a guy who did uh, karate, just absolutely tore this guy to pieces. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think if you get a club that sets up 
and they're just okay well we're humorists we're you know we're, we're patting ourselves up um we're gonna hit each other with swords there's no system we're not basing this on any kind of like historical sources we're literally just wailing on one another with steel swords i think that you know i think that there's obviously that the same danger there where people will read that article about eastern martial arts and go well eastern martial arts aren't that great um and you know the same thing with hema where they'll go oh you know yeah hema's not that great but it, it's not something that's just within hema i think that that's wherever you go you're going to get these kind of charlatans who say oh yeah i i, I do uh you know made a, like snake oil kung fu mm. or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit less worried about charlatans within our community they they're quite quickly uncovered and they don't yeah. really add, tend to to have much say or influence or anything. Well, what I'm more interested, um, more worried about, is the the general face that we're presenting, and does that seem like a, a reasonable, mature, safe group of people, or does it seem like a bunch of idiots beating each other with swords and, and no masks? This has an effect not only on our future recruitment. It has an effect on our insurance companies. What, what impression do they have of our sport? It has an effect on the government. Does the government really want lots of people playing with swords all over the place? <laughs> what, what are our mm, legal defences to have swords and use them for sport? There's lots of issues here uh, for within the UK. Um, just the, the way that sport is organized in this country, uh, there's lots of intermediate steps towards any kind of recognition, and a lot of them rely on people's impression of what HEMA is. Mm. And if the face that our community is putting to the world is just a bunch of folk beating on each other with swords, that's not necessarily going to do anything useful at any level of organization for our community. So taking a bit of time, I think maybe stop trying to grow and just do the maintenance that we have to do, uh, maintenance of, of our clubs, of our organizations, of our, um, our online presences, of the, the various faces we put to the public. Are we showcasing HEMA and our organizations the way that we would like them to be showcased to the different groups of people? If the answer is yes, fantastic, good job. <laughs> Can it be improved at all? Maybe that's something to work on. Uh, I do have the impression that a lot of groups set up a while ago and they've kind of coasted for a while and not a lot has changed since a while ago. And maybe groups like that could do a bit more maintenance or update some of the things in terms of how they present the art, in terms of how they uh, showcase what they're doing, in terms of how they safeguard the people in their club, in terms of how they prepare people to take on new roles within the club or in the community in general. I think there's a lot of interesting discussion happening in the community at the moment about making the community better and making our organisations better. It's meeting a lot of backlash from people who don't approve of that sort of thing. In other words, from people who like it the way it is and who don't want to change. But if we want, if we want this to be a, a sport or an activity that's going to keep going safely for the long term, 
then we need to do the appropriate maintenance. For myself, I've been very fortunate because we're very new. The Academy of Steel, we set up in Cardiff. Uh, do you know what? I actually think it might have been two years ago, like this week, maybe even. Um, but because time has lost all meaning to me during lockdown, <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, like, is this, is this yeah. happening? Um, so we opened about two years ago, uh, and the the first year was fantastic. We, you know, we, um, the people that we that came in, they're still with me, um, and um, you know, uh, I, I see them uh, throughout lockdown. I saw them every week because we'd have a Zoom movie night. So I'll you know mm. we'll, we'll talk on Zoom about some crappy film we're watching um, at the time. <clears throat> which is awesome so they've been they've sort of sustained me throughout lockdown you know and, and throughout the the two-year periods that we've been open and we opened up another branch in uh Co-Philly about a year after we opened the first one and again the same thing happened we just had we were just really lucky with the people who came in they were awesome um and like really supportive uh, during lockdown so i've been fortunate in that you know, um, and I've kind of, you know, when people came in, because uh, there was a post that you put up, which was about like the identity of your group and the goals of your, you know, organization. And it's one that I was thinking about quite a bit because I feel like from the from day one, we had pretty defined goals and identity and keep to. And um, the students that have come in, that, you know, that have accepted that and sort of gone, yeah, that, that's what I want too. That's great. And in terms of gatekeeping, uh, a positive gatekeeping, um, I think you're absolutely right about that too, because we have that, like people look at our website, they see that, you know, we're, we're doing what we're doing. We're quite clearly, you know, um, trying to be relatively disciplined in what we do. And, mm-hmm. and if it's not for them, that's absolutely fine. Um, neither one of us has wasted the other's time. Absolutely. I think this is really important. Yeah. Showcase what you do and the way you do it and don't lie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if if you can bring in the people who want to do the sort of thing that you actually do, you have a much better chance of retaining them, mm. and much better chance of everyone being happy. If you advertise something you don't actually do, and people come in to do that, and then can't, everyone is going to be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite clear in the website, like what we're doing and it's quite, you know, it's energetic and we're doing this. And I had two people come in for like, you know, just to try it out once. And uh, I was like, okay guys, we're gonna start off by running laps. And um, they looked at me like they were trying to hate me to death. And I'm like, what were you <laughs> expecting? Like, yeah. I was like, it's a warm up, don't worry about it. We're not like, you know, we're not gonna be going all, all session. It's just to get the, you know, just to get the heart going. But, and they're like, oh, well, I wasn't expecting this. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's like, <laughs> on the website, you can see us doing like workout and, you know, and stuff like that, just to, you know, just to warm up. But uh, yeah, they were very unhappy, so. Yeah, I think they might have just wandered in, maybe, and not like you know. I was like, you do know what we're what we're about, right? Um, so yeah, uh, actually, we did used to share the hall with some Ludo sportists mm-hmm. uh, who are, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, uh, lightsaber fighters. Um, and I'm like, more power to you. That's fine, but it was obviously really confusing for the people who came through the door. Um, and they came across the Ludo Sport guys first, 
and they're like, are, are you the Academy of Steel? Like, I, I thought we'd be learning how to fight with long swords mm. or, or sword and buckler or stuff like that. And they see people wearing Jedi outfits and um, and things like that. So that was that was really confusing. And um, I would, I, one person actually came in, did the warm up with them, and then only realised when they heard the clash of steel in the like in the next bit over that they were in the Oops. wrong <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah what would you say are your best and worst experiences in HEMA I'd say it's all about the people um, all of the, the experiences I think of fondly have been around really cool people doing really cool things and all of the worst experiences I've had I have been involving people who were just being dicks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that, that is pretty much it. Um, I've got all all kinds of really fond memories of, of events, of training sessions, of spending time hanging out with people, often in the pub after an event. Yeah. And all my fond memory, memories involve happy times with good people. Uh, all the, the worst experiences are typically because someone was just trying to be difficult or just just being a dick and it made my life less good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we were at Fela Nagashka 2018, mm -hmm. uh, you and I, and uh, we went into the pub afterwards. Um, Melissa and I went into the pub, you were already there, you were chatting away with some people. And um, there were a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you about fencing. And Melissa said, oh, why don't you ask him now? And I was like, no, man, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's having a drink. He, he doesn't want to, you know, <laughs> all the time, surely. But then I looked over and you were chatting to like five people and you were sort of like talking about, you know, like, oh, you cut this way. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, I should have asked him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. I think the, the way that uh, things are often done where we fence with each other during the day in the hall and then we go out and drink and chat with each other afterwards it's a, a really powerful opportunity to talk around issues and get better understandings of things but also to develop those quite deep and meaningful friendships with people yeah and i think we can uh, get the measure of each other quite quickly by you know playing the swords during the day and then playing with beer in the evening <laughs> yeah i so that evening um i sat down with um a few of the guys from the cork blade masters uh and there was like you know there was a little spot that was open um melissa and i sat down and i spent the whole evening just kind of like talking and laughing with those guys and mm. yeah we've been um well, for my part, we've been tight ever since, you know. And so I, in, in terms of like the negative stuff, because um, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, when you get people who are being difficult or unsafe, I think is, is one of the things that is like the concern. Hmm. I, is, what do you think? Is that a newbie thing? Is that like a... Sometimes it's just people coming in with expectations that don't align with our reality and we can't blame them for that if we don't showcase what we are actually doing if we don't showcase the reality of our situation mm. uh, whether it's a club an event whatever if we manage to pull people in who think we're doing something else that's a failure in how we're uh, representing what we're doing I'd say more often, it's like the difficulties come from more established people uh, 
who just weigh in and are dicks. Yeah. Um, it can also come in terms of pushbacks. You try and make a positive change to, to improve things for people and other folk who are quite happy with the status quo, with how things were, they push back because they don't want it to change because they quite like that little niche that they found for themselves. Even though it makes everyone else's life a bit more difficult, they quite like it for themselves. Uh, so that that's difficult at times. There's people who maybe are more, just more keen in general on, you know, taking apart what other people try to make than producing things themselves. And I think there's, that, that's unfortunately common. It's terribly common on social media, just yeah. because that, that format of discussion lends itself to people sniping at each other and just being rubbish people. Yeah. I, I, I think we should challenge each other to hold each other to higher standards of behavior. And if people aren't able to do that, then maybe they're not such good people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. Um, I've I've seen a lot of kind of people taking taking the piss out of like interpretations that are ten years old and going, "Oh, hmm. this what a fool!" And it's like, yeah, but what, look at what they had to work with. You know what I mean? We stand on their shoulders to a certain degree. So, uh, sure. I mean, my my early interpretations were abysmal, <laughs> <laughs> and it was working with a handful of sources that. <laughs> there's someone else translated not so very well or that I translated even worse than that but it's a starting point but you you're able to admit that you know you're like ah that wasn't so good um I think maybe the people who generally make targets of themselves uh, are sometimes the people who go no no I, I'm I'm sticking to it this is you know this is the way um I was talking to uh, my first HEMA instructor um and like my mentor uh, Marco and we were walking it was a really cool trip actually because we were walking up to the top of uh, this mountain in Italy it was very atmospheric it was great and um, uh, we were talking about a guy that I used to fence um, and he it, like our, our friendship fell apart because he just couldn't beat me and I was like well maybe you could try it this way and he's like no this is this is how you do it like this is how you do it and you know there's no, there's no other way mm. um, that's a shame yeah, it is because, and, and Marco put it perfectly. He said, well, what's happened here is that he's, um, he's tied his ego to that interpretation of that technique. And when it fails, he feels like he's failing, mm. um, which is, yeah, which is a bit of a shame because it means then that you can't, yeah, you can't, it, you know, you can't adapt, you can't evolve, you, you know, you can't make it into something new and better. And again, going back to one of your blogs where you were talking about how to make, uh, how to get something to work is, you know, first you, you know, you try it, you know, you know I'm going to try it out with a, with a compliant partner and then I'm, I'm going to try it out locally under pressure and then I try it out abroad uh, and things like that. And I think that's a really good way of doing things because if at any of those stages you meet like, Oh, this doesn't work. You know, it works against people in my club because they, they fight in a particular way, mm. uh, but it doesn't work on anybody else. So it's good to be able to then like take that back and go, right. How can I, you know, how can I make that work? Um, I think this is one of the, the immense benefits of going to events or visiting other clubs even if you're studying notionally the same thing, and even if your interpretations are relatively similar, it's just 
different people will have a different way of putting it all together. Different clubs will put it all together differently. And it can be quite eye-opening where you mm. go to somewhere and when you're discussing interpretations, it doesn't sound all that different. And then it's a totally different environment for the sparring. And when going to events, just finding sparring partners and going and playing the swords with people is one of the best things that can be done. I mean, tournaments do this to some extent, but you only get so many partners in a tournament. Yeah. Unless you happen to be going to the, the finals, in which case you probably know all this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say that pound for pound, uh, beginners will get more out of an event if they just go and spend all their time sparring with people than going to do a tournament. You know, go and do a tournament, you can maybe get the four or five fights in your pools. That's you for a number of hours. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you just go and spar and you get easily four or five times that many bouts. You get four or five times as much learning that can be done. Yeah. Tournaments are absolutely important. We should be doing them. But I think a lot of people would get more out of just going and sparring with different people. Yeah. And it doesn't break the flow as much either when you don't have a judge kind of going, okay, stop, like go to your corners. We're going to have a natter for about five minutes and then you're going to go again kind of thing. Um, I mean, to some extent, that is quite useful because if you can't land something well enough for the judges to see it, was it actually a good enough thing? Depends on the judges, surely. Because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is uh, one of the kind of rules I have for myself. If I don't manage to do something well enough for the judges to see it, then it yeah. wasn't good enough. Okay, fair enough. Uh, as, a, as a fairly Boolean test, you know, yeah. it tells me, was it good enough or not? Sure. I can't really hide behind some kind of excuse because either I did it well enough for the judges to see it or I didn't. Yeah. So that, that, that's quite a useful uh, thing to do from time to time as well. We can, if, if we never do competitions and we just do friendly sparring, then we'll get away with a lot of stuff that's not actually that good or that useful, but we think it is because it was enough to make our friendly cooperative partner go, oh, you touched me. Mm. Yeah, I see. I kind of get what you're saying there. I'm, I almost quit tournaments um, for a little while, and I've kind of almost done that a few times where I've just gone, ah, you know, that, that's fine. But then where you're right there are times where you're sort of fighting somebody um you're fighting somebody while sparring and i can't remember there was this guy in italy that i was sparring against and we were just sort of warming up and um i took him apart and uh and then we came into the tournament later on and i'm like ah cool this guy again this will be easy and he wrecked me demolished <laughs> me i was like where was that earlier you know but yeah he just like he just came in with like his point work was amazing and i was like oh fine whatever <laughs> but um yeah so like people like that and that was a really enjoyable fight um and uh you know like, well, it's, it's a valuable skill to be able to dial it up or dial it down on demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm like, I, there's still some part of me that's like, did he lull me into a false sense of security? I don't. <laughs> but, but it was like, it, it's fights like that that are so enjoyable that they keep me coming back to tournaments. Uh, yeah. And then I have like, uh, you know, I have, you know, some occasions where it's just like, you know, where you're talking about, well, the, if the ref didn't see it and I'm like, but I, you know, I doubled him over and the ref didn't see it. Like how, you, 
You know what I mean? Yes, I, I've been in some competitions where the the judges couldn't see anything, which then led to escalation of violence and aggression between the competitors because the only way to get the judges to see anything was to hit bigger and harder. Yeah, and that was not a, not a safe situation. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier about doing the necessary maintenance on our organisations and making sure that people have access to the right training and so on, to be able to discharge their duties correctly. And referees, uh, judges, referees, staff members at competitions are really important people because if they get their, if they, if they do it badly, um, they're contributing to a very unsafe environment. And if they do it well, everything runs smoothly and safely. I think uh, staff at tournaments should be treated exactly like instructors at teaching events because they're individuals who should have a good amount of skill and experience at what they're doing and they should be prized. And if it's not prized, then of course the judges aren't going to be very good and of course they're not going to see everything and that's entirely down to the event organiser not prizing the people who are really important in making things happen safely and smoothly. Generally, I don't, um, I don't do a lot of judging myself because I, I tend to take part in the, you know, if I go to a tournament, I'm going to be in everything that I can. Um, but uh, I was uh, watching this rapier fight at one point. It was so fast. It was, like, and I was like, oh no, like I'm going to be let, like I'm going to let somebody down because I just can't get like it was insane how quick they were. Uh, I can't remember who it was that was fighting. It was a couple of years ago. Um, I think, no, but um, yeah, they were really, really quick. And I thought that, you know, for myself, when I've been in situations where I'm like, oh, come on, like I clearly landed that hit kind of thing. And then I was in that position where I'm like, oh, I'm going to let somebody down. They're going to do something cool and I'm going to miss it. Um, it was fine in the end. Um, I, I do think that people who uh do competitions like more than just once every so often you should have the experience of being a judge because it's very easy to blame the judges when it all goes wrong but it's suddenly it's much more much more difficult to to be that judge i ran a competition in glasgow a few years ago and the rule was that after you finished your bout you'd step off the um the field and you would judge the next bout so everyone judged exactly as many bouts as they fought. Afterwards, there was, of course, complaints that the judges never saw anything, often followed by the admission, and when I was a judge, I know I missed some stuff. That's cool. It kept the complaints um, down. It was very much a lid on the complaints about judging, and everyone realized just how hard it was. I mean, obviously, that's not a format that's appropriate for really big, high-level competitions, but I think uh, it's quite important for people who do more than one competition, you know, in a, in a blue moon, to have the experience of judging as well as just competing. Yeah. I think making it more formal as well is like a, a pretty good idea sometimes. I, I know that um, I was watching a fight between yourself and crap with names uh it was a fight between yourself and somebody else for gold in i think it was in scotland in mm. maybe glasgow and you so won it, it was uh probably a fight with myself and james mcgill at edge banner a few years ago yeah. 
Yes. And uh, as I was watching, I remember I did, like I don't I can't, like I couldn't hear if you said anything or if you did anything. But at one point, you were given a warning for um... influencing the judges. Yes. Yeah, that's it. And I was like, I didn't see him do anything. Yeah, I I got hit, and I you know saluted my partner to to indicate that was a nice hit you got on me, and got a warning for influencing judges. Really? <laughs> yes. Okay, I would be I would be in so much trouble in, uh, in <laughs> because I was fighting um, uh, Pedro San Miguel, and uh, I don't know if you fought him, but the guy is He's very good. Oh man, yeah, and uh, I was like, I was you know his point was just suddenly in my face, and it like fully knocked my head back. And uh, I just, you know, because I'm teaching and, you know, uh, when somebody does something that I appreciate, I usually shout, nice, or, oh, that was ace, or something like that. And he hits me. Mm. And I was like, nice one. Um, so if I was in a competition where I'm not allowed to do that, <laughs> that would be uh, a bit of a problem for me. <laughs> yeah, so I, I fought in a few competitions uh, with that kind of rule, and but received a lot of warnings for saying things or congratulating my partner for doing something cool. <laughs> I, I find that a very difficult behavior to turn off because when I'm coaching, I'm always providing feedback to my student. Yeah. And as I have a much stronger instinct to be a, a teacher or a coach than I, than I have to be a competitor. Yeah, no, I get that. I also swear a lot when I fight, but I'm not swearing at my opponent. <laughs> swearing if I do something wrong, like you know, and and so I'd be a bit like I'd be a bit worried about that too. I think um, I was fighting against um, uh, somebody at Fail in Agashka, and he just uh, I I I basically I did something in saber and I overreached, and it was it was because I was getting a little bit desperate because you know the time was ticking down, uh, and he, he I overreached and it wasn't great, um, and I just muttered it, but because it was the gold match. Um, the room was really quiet, so I just muttered, bastard, right? But it seemed to echo throughout the whole room. Nice. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Fortunately, because it was failing a gash and it was quite relaxed, everybody just laughed and that was it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> you know? um, the last question that I wanted to pose you, uh, old masters. So this was something that somebody sent in from... Uh, it, it was for the Q&A, but I thought it was a really interesting question. I really liked it, and it was one that I was thinking about for quite a while. If you had to fight one of the old masters, uh, and you were both using their specialist weapon, what would you go with? I'm not quite sure how to answer that, because there's a lot of context that would be required to, to make sense of it. Sure. Um, if, if it's about learning, then... I'd be really interested in doing longsword with Ringek. But as per the, the methods and the, um, the the general policies of the time, uh, I'd probably have to swear secrecy uh, before he would take me on as a student. So anything I managed to learn, I'd have to, to uphold his secrets and I wouldn't be allowed to share with anyone else, which would be a shame. Yeah. Um, if it was a fight to the death, Then I'd probably uh, give Archibald McGregor the, the chance to showcase his, his very special method of defending with a, a sabre or a broadsword against a musket and bayonet. 
uh, in his lectures in the art of defense, he goes on at length about this new method that he's invented for doing this and it's foolproof and he had it uh, reviewed by a bunch of his fellow master friends and they, they all gave it the thumbs up and uh, when someone stabs you with a musket and bayonet, you turn from tears to cart or alternatively from cart to tears. Well, that's it. That's yeah. the... That's it. Uh, Is this a case of loaded musket by... <laughs> <laughs> Raworth, I, I think it's Raworth who says um, quite ex quite explicitly that you can do that, but it's not great because the person with the bayonet might just disengage underneath and stab you on the other side. Yeah. So that, that's one of the, the few bits of advice in the source material that, I'm, that I, I generally don't hold with is McGregor's um, defense against the bayonet method because it's too simplistic. And because he bigs it up so much, he talks a lot. He spends a lot of ink on how awesome he is to have come up with this, and then it's just something simple and not that great. Brilliant. I love that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that would suck. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you, I was like, hey, everybody, watch this, and they, yeah, they just disengage and stab you anyway, and you're like, oh no, I thought okay, I didn't thought think of that. Variable. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. Um, I think this is one I'm just going to have to keep coming back to. I might like I might have like a different answer each time, because um, initially, jokingly, I said probably Fiore, because I know that he was quite an old man by the time he actually put pen to paper. It's <laughs> <laughs> not very nice of you. No, I know, but like, you know, <laughs> if it's a fight to the death. This has been absolutely awesome, buddy. Uh, just catching up with you and um, nice, nice to hear your voice again. Yeah, no. Uh, it, coming out of lockdown as well, it was it was, um, you know, seeing that people were not two dimensional as well. I'm like, you've got mm. third dimension. Um, so that was uh, that was great. One of my students, I'd only I'd, I'd only trained because uh, the Caerphilly branch was only open for a month before we had to close it down. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, no, I was I I did everything to try and keep it open. Um, you know, but when, when there was still a hope that lockdown was like the, the last, you know, mm. the, the last resort kind of thing, I was like, okay, you know, um, I'll run extra classes with fewer students. I'll do this. I'll do that. But yeah, uh, in the end it was just, um, you know, fighting against the tide, which is fine. Like, obviously, um, like I said, a lot of them have kept in touch and they've, you know, they've, um, taken part in, um, the stuff that we've put online for them and, um, and that we've done through Zoom. Uh, but yeah, we had to close it a month after their opening. And um, one of the guys, I'd forgotten how big he is because I've only seen him, you know, a few inches tall on, uh, like a few inches big rather on, on Zoom for the better part of half a year. And then like I saw him in person, I'm like, yeah, you're a big dude, actually. I forgot about that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, no, this has been awesome. And um so what events have you got lined up uh, in terms of like your, your club and things like that? Are you planning anything? Because um, I know you travel a lot. Mm. Um, for the rest of the year, I'm, I'm wanting not to be flying anywhere. I'd just like to take this as a kind of an almost year-long break from flying. Uh, within a lot, Fight Camp's going to be going ahead in October. Uh, 
I'm hoping to be there. Uh, other than that, it's all fairly low-key at the moment. Uh, so I'm just kind of running the club, making sure that stays open and you know, stays safe. Uh, doing private tuition and that sort of thing. Maybe as the, the year wears on, be able to do a, a few more residential courses. You know, I'm quite happy for people to come and visit me in Liverpool and do some like a weekend of training with me here. Uh, next year, I've got a a couple of bookings, um, not very many. I'm I'm quite happy just keeping the the calendar relatively empty at this point and seeing how things develop. It's giving me a bit of time to you know finish off some outstanding projects and to start some other stuff that I'm interested in doing. So I'm quite happy with almost like a sabbatical from events for a, <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. Um, I was hoping actually to uh, come and spar with you guys or like come and do a couple of sessions, but that was at the start of the year. <laughs> and then, you know, the world caught fire and, and, and that was the end of that. But hopefully um, maybe towards the end of the year, be able to pop along and take part. Uh, and I know you just said trying to keep it low key with the bookings, but also, might try and book you for next year. So, I'd be um, more, than happy. more than happy. Yeah, man, that would be great. Um, so, where can people find you online and where can people find your work? All over the place. <laughs> the, the kind of central hub where it's all more or less kept together is keithfarrell.net. I, I decided a, a very unique name would be a, a good call for the website. Now, that's what I. You know, that's where I host my, my, my blog articles. I've got um, all kinds of pages with other information and uh, pulling together the various resources I've produced over the years. Um, I've got a shop where I'm selling my books and other interesting books I come across. But I've got a... Aha, uh -huh, yes. Yeah, the uh, German Lung Sword study guide here. You'll notice that it's quite beaten and dog-eared and uh, there's a lot of like, annotations... That's a good uh, sign. Yeah. Uh, no, I think this is great. It's, it's uh, really, again, it's really accessible um, for anybody who wants to get into German longswords. Um, so that's that's the thing that I, I generally kind of turn to when I'm starting on that rabbit hole, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yes. Uh, I've got a, a few writing and publishing projects I'd like to get into soon. Uh, I just need to time <laughs> it's been the whole lockdown period for me was was quite frantic trying to keep a, a number of businesses open at the same time uh i'd, I'd quite like a bit of a, a holiday before the end of the year yeah. uh, but as as more clubs are reopening and and kind of the stress is bleeding off a little bit um I think I'll be able to take that little bit of time off and then spend a bit more time doing the various other things I want to get done. I'm happy that I was able to get a couple of video courses off the ground uh, near the start of, of the lockdown period. I now understand how to do that sort of thing, so I should be able to make a, a few more. I'd like to do another couple of relatively simple courses uh, and then at some point dive into something quite meaty about longsword. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. And uh, you said that that was available at? On Teachable, 
uh, teachable.com. Uh, I think if you go there and type into the search bar, Academy of Historical Arts, then we'll come up. But if you go to my website, keithfarrell.net, under the, the HEMA heading, <laughs> it's got all the information about things like video courses and all that jazz. Uh, I try to make it easy enough for people to find all my various resources from this one central location, mainly so that I can remember where everything can be found. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And uh, for myself, I'm Jordan Mock. Um, you can find us at www.academyofsteel.com. We're on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube. Uh, give us a like and a subscribe. This is a big, big thanks to Keith Farrell for joining us today. Thanks a lot, man. If you want to find out more about historical European martial arts, visit www.academyofsteel.com or look for us on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or you can shoot us over a question at info at academyofsteel.com.